Welcome to the Leadership Pulse, where it's <laughs> Welcome to the Leadership Pulse, Healthcare Culture's new heartbeat, where we talk about all things culture, burnout, and leadership. I'm your co-host, Jessica Zampetri, and this is Becky. Hey, everybody. Welcome. We are so excited to have our guest today. Our guest today is Dr. Brian Segre. He is a San Antonio native, although he's fellowship trained foot and ankle surgeon, currently working in the medical device industry. Prior to that time, Brian spent his time as a residency director at an academy, a university hospital, level one trauma center. He's an educator with previous associate professor status at a major university medical hospital center. In addition to this, Brian is a publisher and writer with multiple peer-reviewed publications in journals, periodicals, and textbooks. He's happily married his wife, Lauren Segre, for nearly 11 years, and they spend all of their time exploring life, traveling, reading, eating, hiking, and pretty much anything outdoors. If you don't follow Brian on LinkedIn, you need to because he's always sharing posts on amazing outdoor photos and amazing food options. And that's just my <laughs> little addition there. And loves to sketch the outdoors. He believes that nothing captures a moment like a camera, but nothing makes you remember it like a drawing or a painting. He currently resides in Texas Hill Country. Brian, welcome to the podcast. We are so happy that you're here with us. Thank you so much. It's awesome to be here with you guys. I'm so excited to finally sit down and talk and share my story and just tell everybody what's going on. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks yeah. again. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks again. So we're going to start off. We're going to ask all of our guests this question because we're just curious as to where our experiences have led us. The question that we're leading into here is if there is one thing you could shout from the rooftops that you want every person in healthcare to hear about culture, leadership, burnout, or medicine in general, what would that be? This is a great question. It's the hottest topic. It's probably like top three in medicine right now. Definitely anyone who's in a surgical field for sure, culture and burnout are directly related. And my biggest takeaway is I was trained years and years ago where the culture of medicine and especially surgery was nobody talked about their feelings. Nobody talked about bad outcomes. Nobody talked about problems at home. No one talked with their bosses or their upper management. No one talked with their peers about, hey, man, I'm stressed. Like we're seeing 50 patients a day. It just wasn't talked about. It was buried. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what that did as a surgeon, especially people who are very like type A, is you just push all this stuff down. You just push it down and everyone else around you is doing the same exact thing, but no one's talking about it. And in any other market besides healthcare, there's such a push to this open culture, people over profit, all these things that you hear. And so finally now medicine and surgery is starting to shift where people are talking to each other. Now they're saying, Hey, I'm right there with you. I can think of scenarios where, especially as a resident or a fellow, you go into the stairwell and sit there and cry, right? Because it's just too much sometimes. And at the end of the day, we all are there for the patient. And so what we used to do is sacrifice our own well-being for the patient, no matter what. And so now it's shifting and there's this transition for people and they realize that you can't pour from an empty cup, right? So it's, if I'm not taking care of myself and I'm not this, no one's perfect, but if I'm not in a situation where I feel good about me, then how can I deliver exceptional care? Absolutely. What do you think the biggest hurdle in surgeon training and surgeon world is to be able to get the surgeon to that vulnerable place of being able to share and being able to reach out to someone. So yeah, it should start in medical school, 
But as far as formal training and fellows, we always have these morbidity and mortality, these M&M conferences, we call them, where we talk about outcomes that didn't go as planned or events that happened where there was a system problem where we could improve them. But at that very early stage with the training, there should be, whether it's uh, people who have retired, people that are still in practice, but they come in and they share stories and it's this open dialogue like we're having now where you get a real doctor who's been there and he comes in and talks to the younger people and shows them like, look, it's okay. It's going to happen probably, but here's how you help it or here's how you cope with it, right? Because you're not going to make burnout and you're not going to make the stress of medicine go away, but you just need to have systems in place so that if it does come up, you can deal with it. Yeah. The direct medical practice or just general work life doesn't change. We know what we're getting into, right? I practiced for a PA for 13 years and I, I know I got into medicine to take care of people. I know I got into right. medicine to make a difference. So that doesn't change. But like you said, there are some systems that could change to really make it a better place and a better culture to work in. So for you, with your journey, can you talk a little bit more about that? What transitions have taken place for you and how has that affected you as a person? Sure. I would say I'm here by choice, but it was definitely a circumstance. I basically had my head down forever. As I was in high school, I was really young. I was 12 years old, 13 years old, and had unfortunately come in on a close friend of mine who had literally just committed suicide. I was the first person that found him. And so I had this calling from a really young age that I knew I to help people. From that point forward, it was just become a doctor. Then I found my way into surgery. I do all these things. I get to the pinnacle of my career as the residency director at a really young age at a great institution. And then I lost my dad to his second round of lung cancer. He just wasn't strong enough. And mom and dad had this 50 year old family business, huge plumbing, heating, air conditioning company in Texas and high school sweethearts. All their circles were combined. And basically mom, there was no way she could run this big company. She just couldn't do it. So. My wife and I had literally just bought a house right near Georgetown, like expensive house, 20% down. I walked away from it all, went home and took over the family business, became the president of the company. And over the course of like three years, my brother and I grew the company. And then during the pandemic, actually during COVID, when a lot of people were struggling, believe it or not, the trade industry was doing very well. Usually you're at work and everyone else, their stuff is breaking. Their stuff needs to be remodeled, was in their home. So people were spending money, they're getting things done. So we got lucky from that standpoint, but then we had people coming that wanting to buy. And so my brother and I decided to sell the company, which was great. Mom's retired, living the country club life, now loving it. <laughs> but for me, it was hard because then I gave up my career to come home and take over my dad's business. And then after doing that for like three years, it's really the last thing that reminded me of him. Now we just sold it. And so then that was very hard for me. It's almost been a year ago now. And so basically I had like never heard of LinkedIn. I've never been on social media and my wife, she was like, get out of the house, find something to do. You're driving me nuts. So basically I got on LinkedIn and just started playing around and literally was like, this is a really neat place. And literally over the course of six months, I started to grow in the community. And then I started to share some of my anatomy drawings that I used to do and literally connected with two co-founders from a business and ended up becoming their clinical educator and their research specialist literally through LinkedIn. But now I found out that LinkedIn is so much more than that, but it's definitely been a journey from surgeon to plumbing company to medical devices. <laughs> 
I can imagine. What key things did you learn through the whole business experience that wish you would have learned in medical school or in that arena? Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's so much that I learned there. I can tell you for sure the amount of education I got from that experience was better than any book or classroom because the trade workers, the people who literally are making a difference like every day, right? Besides just the healthcare workers, but the trades literally keep the world running. Mm -hmm. If you don't have air conditioning and running water and electricity, nothing else really matters, right? And so these people are family people, they're conservative, they're down to earth, they're hard workers, they don't complain, and they literally work the same hours as surgeon or someone that's an EMT, very crazy hours because they're having to work when people are at home before they go to work or on the weekend, they're on call, things break in the middle of the night. And so for me, I learned that It's learning to interface with everybody because as a surgeon, everyone always came to you, right? Yeah. So for me, the biggest takeaway was when I was in that industry, everyone was the same. And in medicine, that's getting better now. But that hierarchy type system, it needs to be really bottom up is how it needs to be. That's how it should be. The pyramid needs to be flipped. And some, unfortunately, in medicine, it's happening very Yeah. What other reasons do you think it might be happening slowly in medicine? Just curious your opinion. A lot of people may not want to talk about this or they may not want to hear it, but it's unfortunately, it's the truth is that large private equity firms, big businesses, large companies, right? These LLPs, they're buying hospitals and private practices and small surgery centers and small hospitals and rural hospitals, and they're building these huge conglomerate healthcare systems where they can, they claim that because they're bigger and they're larger, they can reduce the cost of healthcare and deliver better healthcare, right? And that's what we all want. The problem is that they're business entities and there's complicated red tape. There's huge administration boards. There's people making decisions for healthcare that aren't physicians, that are business owners. And so I think the reason that it's so slow to shift is because In the United States, medicine has become capitalistic and it's not a people serving practice like it used to be. It is, and I hate to say that, but that's the truth. It's big business now. Healthcare is like the number one cost in any country, especially in the United States. So of course we want to monetize it, right? So I think it's because it's a struggle between who's in charge. Are the doctors in charge? Are the big systems in charge? That's what I'm seeing. And it's becoming harder to compete as a private physician or as that rural doc who takes care of everybody in his, in his town because it's disappearing. And so I think that's the struggle. Yeah. And when you have these private equities and these huge conglomerates, it's really hard for them to not look at revenue as their leading driving factor because they're trying to run it like a business, like every other business in America where revenue is one of your drivers. And when you do that, it's really hard to switch the culture of healthcare where we have it now. Yeah, it is. And I think medicine has become very metric driven. And so surgeons and doctors everywhere that I practice, and I haven't practiced probably in three and a half or four years, I don't think I've been in the operating room at primary as a surgeon. It's like, it, you just see this shift. And the big concern is that they're worried about cost, but they're not worried about cost in the sense that they're wanting you to not use things that are less experimental or more expensive or things that haven't been proven. They're worried about lowering their overhead cost. And so what happens there is physicians have to see more patients. 
they have to do more surgeries, they have to work more hours, then they can't devote as much time to teaching, right? I used to be able to spend time with residents and fellows and students in between patients, asking questions, reviewing things, talking about life, right? Talking about anything. But now everything is so metric-based that doctors are treated where you have to see this many patients. And it's, so it's become where a surgeon who's already under a lot of stress is now being graded like on a scorecard and bonuses, vacation time, there's things tied to this. And so that's another struggle for doctors is trying to, you want your patients to be happy and you want your patients to obviously get great outcomes and be pleased with their care. But those metrics, right? Like a smile, a Christmas present, a pat on the back from a patient, a nice note. Those are not the metrics that big brother cares about. And oftentimes they diverge. They don't run in parallel. So that's a struggle also is the constant, the physician now is under constant scrutiny. Yeah, no, Jess and I talk about this too, where it's, there's a lot of people involved with leadership and there's poor communication with clinicians versus administration. And that really complicates how well people can work together for the outcome of the patient, honestly. Jess, what were you going to say? I was going to ask, coming from the medicine background and then the business and the leadership, how do you think we get more physicians in leadership in those positions so that they have time to change the culture and do all of that if they're also tied to all of these metrics? That's a great question. Honestly, I think what you have to do is the way I look at it is people will always tell you that if you're a good, or this is a stigma, people, they'll say, if you're a good leader, you don't really have to lead. People just follow you. I look at it in the sense that if you're a good leader, you train other leaders, right? And so Mm. these people that are quote following you, they're not following you because it's just what everybody else is doing. They're following you because they're wanting to be a leader. And what you have to do is you have to designate and you have to find these thought leaders. You have to find these creators or these people who want to change the culture. And then you have to have, just like you have these M&M committees, you have radiology conference, you have to develop some sort of a training program, or you have to have literally time set aside to where the people that have these skills and have been in these situations can literally instruct the younger people on that. So it has to be baked into the curriculum. It can't, the after hours stuff, the phone a friend, the, we'll talk about it on the weekend, we'll go out and have a drink after work. It can't be that it has to be part of it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. There- yeah, there's a, the formal aspect of leadership development that's not really taking place. That's what's missing in a lot of cultures at this point is people are realizing that these are the skill sets of communication with other people, building those relationships, and that actually creates the culture. But a lot of times it's just missing at this point. So I love what you just said. It's a formal training that has to be baked in at this point. I see what's happening in some organizations is that people are being tasked with try to figure out how to do some retention with the people in your department. So what does that look like specifically with your department versus strategic organizational like development? What do you think would happen if it's just departmental versus somebody actually getting the resources and the structure that they need to develop people and help the culture? What do you think the difference there would be? As far as like keeping people retained? Yeah. Honestly, it's something that I think for something like that, as opposed to like it being big and organizational organizational or top down retention and that culture honestly has to be flipped up. So that goes back to the same thing where if you want to say the community level, the local level, the grassroots level, I think if you want to retain good quality people on your team from the nurse all the way to the PA, to the physician, the attending surgeon, whatever 
that whole hierarchy. It has to be where the whole community, that local community is working together to maintain because they interact on a daily basis. So we used to do a meeting, we call it a huddle and it was awesome. Literally every morning I would huddle with my team, all the nurses, the radiology techs, everybody would huddle for seven minutes. We would do it every morning. And basically what you would do is in that time, you would go over the day, any roadblocks, anything that anybody needed that they didn't have. And so we constantly were almost on the same playing field. It was a free time to speak and people didn't want to leave. People looked forward to working with each other because it was, I treated it almost because I was an athlete. So to me, it was like a, it was like a huddle as a team. And so literally people were fired up for the day every day. And so there may be things that the bigger organizations can do to help with retention. Right. When it comes to retention, it really is creating that local environment. That's what I think. Now, when you created that huddle, did you have that excitement from the beginning or was there certain things that you had to create or motivate the individuals in there to get that kind of energy and culture? It was, yeah, for me, it was basically some people, they say are born leaders. Some people learn how to be leaders. For me, I was always falling over my feet. So <laughs> I fell a lot and I stumbled a lot. And so Honestly, it's the best way to learn, right? Is yes. by doing the wrong thing. And then I also learned that all of my mentors who I couldn't be here without, some of the most important things that they taught me, unfortunately, were what not to do, right? <laughs> and that's the truth. N nobody's perfect. People probably could say the same thing about me and they certainly can. For me, I would sit there and say, there's no cohesion in this team, right? Nobody knows that we're out of this or we don't have that. Or the guy that's my radiology tech, his wife is about to leave him at home. So I can't figure out why he's not Johnny on the spot like he usually is. There's something going on in his life or whatever. Because everybody has something else outside of work. So I started to realize that's what was missing was this open discussion where it wasn't like knocking on your door because your door was <laughs> closed and the surgeons in there just like working away. I rarely had my door closed like it was. Yeah. And so it was just me doing what no one else really did or what I wished other people would do. I said, I'll try it, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. I think there's fear. Honestly, the people that I talk to now, there's fear to even begin those types of huddles because what do I say? You can ask something so simple, like what was a childhood memory that's really important to you or an icebreaker of what's your favorite ice cream and where would you recommend or something so simple just to connect with people. But I think it's so important to have those relationships established, especially when you're trying to work so cohesively as a team. Yeah. So I love that you Absolutely. did that. And I love that you shared that. You mentioned that you fell a lot over your feet getting into leadership. Can you give us one story that locks in and is memorable to you that you really learned a lot from? Okay, so this is about leadership, but it has nothing to do with medicine. So when I was running the, when I was running the business, when I first took it over, I was a firm believer. And so was my dad that no matter what you do at a company or in your career, you need to be quote in the trenches and you need to be able to do everything that you ask of anybody else. Not that you do that, but you should at least have a grasp on how to do it. If you're going to ask it of someone else, literally what I did when I took over the business was I went through what everyone did. I rode with the guys in the trucks. I watched what the warehouse managers did. I learned everything. And I remember one time when I was going through this process, I kept missing on all these marks on all this inventory stuff. And I, I don't understand how I'm not getting this. This should be very simple to me. And then I hear someone talking about this manager's meeting that happens every Tuesday. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like the president. So why am I at that meeting? And they're like, oh, we thought you were too busy. And I'm like, yeah, but 
I'm working in this manager position right now. That's why I'm failing you guys is because I don't even know when the meeting takes place. <laughs> oh so to me, that was funny. Like, they're like, oh yeah, you didn't know about the meeting. I'm like, no, what meeting? <laughs> so it goes back to what we were talking about is just people assuming. So they assume that because I was the owner and the guy running the business yep. that, oh, he doesn't, he's too busy for this, or he doesn't need to know about this wrong. It reminds me of one of the healthcare conferences that I was at last year. They brought in the CEO of Hot Chicken Takeover in Ohio, and he did a keynote. And it was interesting because when he's starting, you're like, what the heck does this have to do with healthcare? Like, how does this interplay? And one of the huge things was that everyone has a dish sink. So he started his every single level at the dish sink. They all wash dishes. And even yep. as they got to manager and sales trainer, they all still had to do a dish sink session, whether that was once a month or once a quarter, because it helped bring in their culture of this systemic and that we're all in this together because yep. I'm willing to do this like everyone else. I remember when I was a resident at Georgetown, there's a surgeon there who's still there, so I won't mention anything, but he's one of the very few, he's like triple boarded, which is very rare. He maintains board status and all those. And he's also like a photographer for National Geographic. He's an amazing guy. Oh, wow. And I remember there were days where we would do literally no joke. We would do 15 to 20 cases a day, right? Like a day, same team, same OR, just incredible surgeon. And literally we, me and him would be towards the end of the day, emptying the trash, turning over the room, going to help bring the patient back. And that right there showed me like this guy is one of the most skilled surgeons in the country, but literally he is emptying the trash and I'm putting the trash bin back in there. So it's like from, so I'm not saying that like everybody has to do that, but the point is don't be not willing to do something, you know, that maybe you think you shouldn't be doing. Because if you do that, others are always watching and it just might let them think to themselves, okay, then I can punch below my level or I can punch above my level. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so then it starts to put everybody on the same playing field. So he taught me that was to just do it. Don't make a big deal out of it. And people will watch you and they'll just emulate it. Yeah. Yeah. And it just makes me think that surgeons that are like that and physicians that are like that, how much easier it is to connect with them. And then it breaks the stigma too of the surgeon is real. He's like a real person. He's kind. And he's a great leader. I love that. I think that there is still the stigma sometimes with physicians not feeling like they can be vulnerable and real and honest. What do you think might help in those situations to, to help break the stigma? Truthfully, the best thing probably to do would be it's sharing, because if even one or two people share, then other people realize it's okay to share. So I'll never forget the moment that I found out my dad first had lung cancer. I was a resident. I was on ortho trauma service. And literally at this level one trauma center, we would see 30 to 40 patients a night. The helicopters would come and go and come and go. It was a big facility. And I literally found out right in the middle of that shift. And I just remember breaking down for five minutes. I called my chief resident and I was like, I got to go to the call room for 10 minutes. And I still didn't want to tell anybody what was going on. I literally just pulled myself out of there 10 minutes later and went and just focused on taking care of those patients the rest of the night because I knew that was what my dad would want me to do. I used it as energy. And so I turned something that was horrible into something that I was able to then do 
positive. That's a story that I share a lot. The ones in the stairwell just breaking down, the more doctors that hear that other physicians have been there or that are there, they will realize that vulnerability is it's like wearing a cape. People think that it's this thing that you hide away, but honestly, when you're willing to share those things that no one else wants to, that's very empowering to other people. People just need to start sharing and not be afraid. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of the things that I've seen that has grown so much in other industries because you have this transformation of what leadership has been in other industries. It has moved from more of this management into this emotionally intelligent leadership. And it seems like we're still missing that a lot in healthcare because we're not teaching those right tools. And vulnerability is one of the largest levers you can pull in that whole transformation because so we measure courage by the ability that someone can be vulnerable. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's why I think a lot of military veteran people who have served the country, they transition really well into leadership roles, especially in healthcare. Because if they haven't experienced a lot of those issues, PTSD or loss or grief, then they know people very close to them that have. And so they learn to share. There's like a brotherhood there of sharing, which in medicine, it's like the opposite. It's like you don't talk about it, right? Yep. And so I think that's why military people who transition or law, law anyone that's in that sort of service industry, they have such good soft skills and they've seen so much hurt and pain but they've also seen the good too. And I think they transition like really well. So yeah, I think that's something where it's those soft skills. It's like those things that they say, like the unteachable type stuff where like you mentioned, courage and vulnerability, you can't get that out of a book. But if you listen to enough people talk about horrible stories and how they came out of them, how they stood back up afterward, you hear enough of those and it just it becomes a part of you and you start to act that way. Yeah, that is true. The power of storytelling where ancestors built a whole civilization on it, where it's like we're relearning the art of storytelling for many of us. Correct. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Do you see any other barriers? So besides that type of like stigma, the vulnerability that needs to be more prevalent, do you see any other barriers towards like healthy culture or any other thoughts on leadership and how it'll be shifting for the future in healthcare? Nothing specific, but I can say like what you guys are doing, honestly, is part of the solution. It's this is what needs to happen. It needs to be like open dialogue, stuff that's just unscripted. People need to have these conversations on site at hospitals. The big academic medical conferences and surgical conferences that go on every year where they have CME training. And you guys know all these conferences. I still go to them and lecture. There should be people lecturing on this there, right? Mm -hmm. So it needs to just be out in the open. So my best advice moving forward is everybody always wants to celebrate their successes. They want to publish their good results. They want to shine a light on things that look pretty and are sparkly, but no one wants to do that to their bad data, to the cake that you baked that turned out horrible, right? It could be anything in your life, but what needs to happen is people need to take their light and they need to shine it on the things that are hidden in the closet. And that's what you guys are doing. And that's really how you move forward is by just, mm -hmm. just taking a look at it from a different angle. Thank yeah. you. That's yeah, definitely that. <laughs> a good line to end on, shining the light on the dark. No, I love cool. that. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. We certainly appreciate it. We loved hearing your story. I love following you on LinkedIn. So if you aren't following Brian on LinkedIn, you must because he is super active, very encouraging, and just one of those people that I love to read your posts every single day. Is there anywhere else we can uh, invite people to follow you or is LinkedIn your most active uh, social media site? Yep. 
that's the only place I am. I'm scared to go anywhere else. I'm waiting for you to start a TikTok, Brian. Never. There's so many people trying to get me on TikTok and I refuse. Thank you for joining us. And of thank course. you for joining yes. us thank for you. our first episode of the Leadership Pulse. It was awesome. Thank you all for having me.